money beloved? It's the day after Christmas. Do you feel that kind of like, oh, like are you tired? Full of life, some of you? Yeah? No? <laughs> All right. Well, I would like for you to just think about the kids and how um, they, don't, they don't seem to crash like that. Like they, they crash um, the most inopportune moments and then they recover somehow magically in a very short amount of time and they're ready to go. So let's kind of take that spirit. So you were asked the question, what was your favorite pastime as a child this morning for the name tags? And um, just, I've been thinking this week, like what did I live for as a child? Like, what was the thing that you just lived for? Like, this is my thing as a child. And so when I think about that, um, I know the, the things that stand out for me are driving anything with wheels as fast as humanly possible. Um, things like tying towels around my neck to be Batman, because it was up to me to save the world, and eating as much ice cream as I could possibly get away with. Um, in other words, essentially my purpose in life was to have as much fun as possible. And isn't it kind of funny that... For many of us, that never changes. <laughs> like, life is still about how do I find the most satisfaction, the most enjoyment? How do I avoid things that make me uncomfortable? How do I just surround myself with things that are pleasurable? And so we, we kind of commit our life to doing the things that are gonna bring us what we think is happiness, and that's our pursuit. Uh, we, we even have famous statements about like these inalienable rights, and they include this pursuit of happiness. And we want to be happy. And, and I want to go ahead and say up front, like, I don't think God is opposed to that. But I think that we have misconstrued that. And we often don't know what that really should look like and is. Um, but we, uh, we just live for so many things. And so I would ask you right now, like, I'll actually stop talking for a few seconds. And I want you to think, in your life right now, what are you living for? What is the thing that actually gives you hope? Like, what is it that you're reaching for? What is it that, if there's one thing that I could just, I could maybe wave a magic wand and just change it for you, would just be like, yes. What are you living for? We are picking up where we left off in the Christmas story in Luke chapter two. So if you have your copy of scripture, turn there with me, Luke chapter two. We stopped at verse 20 last week, and we'll pick up in 21 today. Um, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. So Jesus has been born. The Messiah has come with great heralding. The angel army has shown up celebrating. We know John sees a different vision in heaven. This is actually war, and we saw how that's actually the same. This is a lover coming for his beloved, and he is coming to wage war on all that was hurting his beloved. And so now Jesus has come. He has been born, and he didn't come how everyone expected. Instead, he's born into lowly circumstances. This lowborn king placed in a manger, a feeding trough, because there's no room for them in Bethlehem where they're traveling to to be a part of this census. They're there to register, and so it's just this wild story that unplays, and we see the beauty of that, the grandeur of that, that the God of the cosmos would come in such humility as a picture of how he would ultimately be exalted in the humblest of ways, that he's actually murdered on a criminal's cross. And so from start to finish, it just makes us say, what? And then, wow, like this is amazing. And so we pick up, Jesus has been born. He is still very young. And so verse 21, it says, when the eight days were completed for his circumcision, and this is a Jewish custom, on the eighth day of a young male's life, he would be circumcised. Um, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. 
And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And so you need to see something here. Um, there's custom. Um, this, this is prescribed in the, the Old Testament and the law. So Jesus being a male born, on the eighth day, he is named and he is circumcised. Circumcision was this physical mark of identifying as the people of God. And so this goes all the way back to Abram when he's called by God to be different. You're gonna be um, the father of a great nation, all this stuff. And so Jesus, according to the law, is now circumcised. He is named Jesus as the angel told Mary he was to be named before he was conceived. And so then, after the days of purification, namely 40 days, of Mary has given birth. And so Joseph, likely they're helping. Um, both of them would be unclean because they have touched blood and so forth. And so there's a time of waiting for purification, some rituals to go through and so forth to be clean before you can go in the temple. And then at this time, there's a prescribed time when you then bring the child to the temple. And this is the firstborn male. And so the law says the firstborn male is to come to the temple and then there to dedicate the child to the Lord. And that is through the giving of an offering, a sacrifice. And so um, this, this is what we see here. Mary and Joseph and Jesus are obedient to the law. This is very important for us to see. They are obedient to the law and they come with this offering and this offering also tells us quite a bit about this family. That they come with, what does it say? A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And if you go back into the Old Testament and you look at the law, that's not all that you can offer. That's actually the second option. The first option is a lamb. But if you were poor, if you lived in poverty to where you could not afford to buy a lamb, then you could bring a pair of turtle dove or two young pigeons. And so what Luke is cluing us in here to is Mary and Joseph do not have a lot of wealth. They're coming to the temple obeying the law, but they're coming as poor people. And so they come here to offer this. And now we pick up in verse 25. Watch what happens as they're at the temple. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. Simeon is a righteous and devout man that is clearly in step with the Spirit. And, and just quickly, like this, this convicts me. Like, can you imagine this, this old man is living so in step with the Spirit that the Spirit has told him this promise. You won't die until you see the Messiah, Simeon. And so now Simeon is living with this promise that I'm not gonna die before I get to see the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one, the rescuer, the savior, the Lord that has been promised by all the prophets that we've all been waiting for. I'm going to get to see him with my own dimming eyes before I die. And then here comes Mary and Joseph with this little baby coming up to the temple, and they've got the poor person's sacrifice, an offering. So they probably don't want a lot of attention. 
This is a humble, meager couple walking up, but here comes Simeon, who's been told by the Spirit that day, go to the temple. And he shows up and he sees this couple and he makes a beeline for them. And he breaks out into prayer and prays to God. Now I can go to sleep. You've delivered on your promise. This is the Messiah. He sees Jesus, the fulfillment of God's promise to him, but also to the nations. He identifies Jesus with the certainty that this is his salvation. This is the glory of Israel, but this is also for the Gentiles, which would have been wild for anyone listening to hear this man say, this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles? Because remember, the Jews often thought of Gentiles as like dogs, They're disgusting. Like, you're unclean if you interact with the Gentiles. And so they wanted a strict separation. In fact, in the temple, there are points where there there would actually be a sign that archaeologists have recovered. They're like, a threat of death. Gentiles are not to pass this point. Like, you do not belong here. And yet, here is Simeon saying, this is a light for revelation to the Gentiles, to all the nations. This baby, this baby born 40 days ago, This is the one I've been promised is to come. This is beautiful. And so now watch what he does in verse 33. His father and mother, meaning Joseph and Mary, were amazed at what was being said about him. So they're hearing his prayer. They're like, wow. So imagine, they've already heard the angelic announcements, the wise men showed up, or I'm sorry, the shepherds showed up that night, and they've told them what they heard from the angelic army. And so they have all these things running through their minds, And now here we are 40 days into this and here's this old man who breaks out into this prayer of praise, takes Jesus into his own arms, which you're like, is is that okay for parents to do? (laughs) But this old man now has Jesus and so his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. This, remember, this, this is a narrative. And so as you're reading through this narrative and you're hearing the story, imagine you don't have all of the other knowledge that you already have about the gospel. So imagine immersing yourself in the story, reading it for the first time. You hear all of this hopeful praise, all of the, the news of what's to come, these angels showing up and saying like these amazing things are gonna happen. You have this miraculous birth by a virgin, like all of this just crazy cool stuff that's all positive is happening. I mean, it was a little dark that like, why didn't they have room for them? Why are they in an animal trough? Like this is kind of weird, but like, yet yeah, it's beautiful. And so everything's just hopeful, optimistic. It's crazy cool. And then you get to this point where Simeon has this beautiful prayer to God. And then he kind of turns and locks eyes with mom and dad and says, here's the thing. You were blessed. But know this. This child, he's going to be divisive. He's going to be the cause of the rise and the fall of many. Mary, actually, it's going to be like a sword cutting through your soul. Heck, what? What is that? Change of pace here. What is going on? This is the gospel's first revealing of anything troublesome. The rise and fall of many, a sign to be opposed, a sword piercing Mary's soul is the first clue we get that this is probably not going to go the way that we think it should go if the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior has come to rescue us. This is the hope of the glory of Israel, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and yet there's something weird and dark at play. That this is what it's gonna look like. So Simeon has finished his thoughts, and we pick up in verse 36. There was also a prophetess, 
Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So here's Anna. Did you hear that? Married to her husband for seven years, a widow of 84 years. And since the loss of her husband, she has been at the temple day and night devoted to fasting and prayer. This is an old, old lady. And remember, um, Jewish custom, girls were probably married between 12 to 14 years old. So a 12 to 14 year old gets married, is with her husband, deeply in love. Like you remember, like the butterflies, the excitement of marriage, like so deeply in love with him. And seven years, he dies. And now she's alone, distraught. And she has made the decision. This is her reality, that nothing will comfort me other than God himself. The redemption of Jerusalem, the Messiah. And so she is in the temple. And this is the old lady in the temple. And you just have to imagine, like if you've ever been to an assisted living facility, you know, there's, there's always a handful of people. Like if you go there on a regular basis, you kind of remember some of them. There's, there's the one who's staring out the window with kind of that blank stare in their eyes. There's the one who's just always glued to the TV. There's all these things. And you just kind of like, your heart breaks for them. You're like, who visits them? When was the last time they had a conversation that was not, did you take your medicine? Are you ready for your bath? Things like that. And you just, you just, your heart breaks. You wonder like, what, what is this? What is this life like? And here's this old lady who married for seven years, a widow of 84 years, is at the temple. Can you imagine a lady like that? And she can't go into the inner portions. She's in the court of women or the court of Gentiles. So she's exposed largely to the elements. And just imagine her there, constantly praying. And she's bone thin because she fasts so much. And Mary and Joseph are here. Simeon's there. He's saying this weird stuff that's making us question things even more. And now here's this old lady who's the one that the priest probably on a daily basis would have to walk by and be like, is she down there just praying or did she actually pass away this time? Oh, she's alive. All right, carry on. Like generations have come through here at this point. Everybody knows Anna. That's the old lady who's always here. We come here once a year. That's the lady who's always here. We pass her every time. Imagine the story circulating of like, what happened to her? Why, why is she here all the time? What, what is the deal here? Yet now, here she is. She sprung up, old lady, all sprightly, and she wants to talk about Jesus. She wants to talk about Jesus. She's here. She's thanking God, speaking about Jesus to all who are looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So you have this old man, this old lady. What is the deal, Luke? Why is he including these stories? So we keep going. Verse 39. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. 
And most important thing for you to see in there, um, there, there's some great things that helps us to know, okay, they were in Bethlehem for the, the registration, they've gone to the temple, which will be in Jerusalem, now they're back for Jesus to grow up as a child in Nazareth, and so Jesus the Nazarene, so that's his hometown, but the most important thing I want you to see in there is when they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord. This is a pious family. They are religiously devout. They are doing what they are called to do by the law of the Lord. They're following the law of God. These are law-keeping believers. And now look what happens in verse 41. Every year, his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. So again, pious family. As prescribed by the law, they're gonna go to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Um, they're, gonna, they're gonna do this religiously. And so each year they do this. Now Jesus is 12 years old. And so this is significant for us because in Jewish custom, a 13-year-old boy is now considered a man. Jesus is 12. Luke concludes that because he wants you to know this is still Jesus, a child. Jesus, a child. 12 years old. They went up according to the, festival, the custom of the festival. 43. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began to look, looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Jesus' first recorded words in the gospel. And what are they? He's speaking for himself as to who he is and what he is about. This is who I am. So, big question. What is Luke showing us in these two stories from Jesus' childhood? So, accepting the birth of Christ, these are the only two childhood stories that we get here in this gospel. So, why did Luke include these two stories? You have Jesus being brought to the temple for his dedication and this prophet and prophetess coming and speaking a blessing and prophecy over him and the family. And then you have Jesus, 12 years old, on the brink of becoming a man, and he's, as a child in the temple, talking with the scribes, talking with the, the elite scholars of the day, and they're amazed at his questioning and his answers. Like, what is this? His understanding. And then Mary and Joseph they're apparently traveling with a big party. They leave. They think that Jesus is hanging out with his cousins or something. He's part of the party. Daylight starts to come down. They're like, wait, where's Jesus? You guys seen Jesus? They don't know. Three days, they're back. They find him in the temple. Jesus, what are you doing? You know how much anxiety you've caused me and your father? Like, wait, did, why, why were you looking for me? Wouldn't you know where I would be? Don't you know that I have to be about my father's business? be in my father's house? Obviously not, because <laughs> this is not where we first went. So why would he talk like this? Why would Luke include these stories? So we have to remember, back to chapter one in his introduction, what is Luke's aim in this whole gospel? He wants to provide certainty to Theophilus for the things in which he's been taught. 
So how is Luke giving us a window into certainty? And I would say it's in two major ways here. In two major ways, Luke is providing us a window of certainty. So the first one is that there would be a charge against early Christianity. There would be a charge against early Christianity that this is a distortion of Judaism. That this is, this is a break from what is true of God and his people. And so Theophilus would hear all these accusations, saying like, this is a baseless religion, this is false, this is a cult, this is all these terrible things. And so Luke is providing a certainty that this is actually a continuation and a fulfillment of the Old Testament as opposed to a distortion. So what is the setting of both events? The temple. And so if there is a place where you would know this is the epicenter of Judaism, it is the temple. And so the presence of God is to dwell in the innermost room, the holy of holies, God seated above the seat of mercy, like him between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, God is to be there. His actual presence is here. And so the high priest gets to go in once a year and present this offering of atonement. He sprinkled blood on this seat and it's all this beautiful picture of the gospel. This is the dwelling place of God here in this temple. And so where do these stories take place? at the temple, where any Jew would say, that's significant. These, these saints, these old people, it's Mary and Joseph as the parents doing everything according to the law of the Lord, coming up regularly, as is the custom, going to the temple, offering appropriate sacrifice, all these things that they're doing. And then you have Simeon, you have Anna, these saints of the Old Testament, these, these are people that the Jews would look at them and think, yes, that is a God-honoring life. And what are they saying? They're all as good Bible-believing, so to speak, followers of God saying, Jesus is the Messiah. They have a certainty about who Jesus is. The old saints are attesting to Jesus while being undeniably devout to the law. Mary and Joseph and Jesus as a child. They're adhering to the law. This is not a break from the Old Testament. This is actually a continuation and a fulfillment. And so Theophilus, if you're hearing all these accusations that this is some kind of apparent just like just wandering away from the truth, then you need to know this. People that we would all respect that were Jews, they're affirming this. This is not a distortion of God's word. This is the fulfillment. This is a continuation of what God has promised all along. This is what we've all been waiting for. And then there's another window that Luke is providing. And this is the window of certainty of identity. That just like these saints see Jesus and correctly identify him as Savior, as Messiah, as Lord, just like the angel announced, so too Jesus sees who he is. Even as a child, Jesus knows who he is with certainty. That mom and dad, what, what, what's the concern? Why were you looking for me? How did you not know I would be here? Meaning, I knew, I knew where I needed to be. I need to be in my father's house. I need to be about my father's business. Jesus knew his mission. He knew his identity. He had a certainty about that, and that is the gospel. That Jesus knew what he came here to do. That he left God the Son, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. God the Son left the throne of glory, emptied himself, took on humanity, he became, this is Christmas, he became a man born as a baby, dependent on his own creation and lived a sinless life so that he could be that once and final for all sacrifice, the perfect atoning sacrifice to cover our sins that in Jesus' death, 
we would die to ourselves, die in sin, but come to life with him, everlasting life, the forgiveness of sins, the wrath of God satisfied by his death. He took our shame, our condemnation, our punishment on himself so that we would not have to face that. And he's calling us, repent, turn from your sin, and believe and follow me. This is the gospel. Jesus knew what his mission was. He had a certainty about this, even as a child. So this is beautiful. And now, this is what I want us to know. We now carry this mission forward with certainty. Jesus knew his mission, and then he ended his time on this planet before ascending back to the Father and gave us a mission. And so we can carry this mission forward with certainty, seeing the certainty of who is Jesus. Because this is the thing, the more certain you are of who Jesus is, the more certain you'll be of who you are. Can we get into these, like, you know what you live for as a child? I live for fun. <laughs> this is it. But then the, the older I grow, the more I realize, like, fun is just kind of regularly taken away from me. And it's like, oh, now I get these existential crises. What do I live for? Who am I? As these different things are stripped of me, who am I? We want a certainty about that. Don't you admire confident people? Don't you admire the people who are not rocked by circumstance, that have a deep-seated conviction of it's okay. Come what may, ah, we're gonna be okay. Don't you long for that kind of certainty? And you can have it. But here's the thing, the more certain you are about who Jesus is, the more certain you will be about who you are. And then we can take that to the church level. The more certain we are as a church of who Jesus is and who he has called us to be, the more certain we will be about what we should be about. What is our mission? What are we to do? We're to live in light of the gospel, live as those who follow Jesus, because the gospel calls us to repentance and holiness. You want to know who you are with certainty? You look to Jesus and you see that the gospel calls us to repentance and holiness just like Jesus did. He ran around screaming, like summarized version of his sermon was, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. Turn from your sin and if you turn from sin, then what are you turning toward? To God. And so they go hand in hand. You turn from your sin, repent and follow me. They are together that you turn away from your sin and you turn toward God and you're following him, that you're walking with Jesus in step with the spirit according to the will of the Father. This is what we do as Christians. We live in a posture of repentance because on this side of redemption, we are still broken sinners. In the sight of God, we are fully justified. It is certain that we whose trust is in Christ for salvation, we are forgiven, we are pure in him. And yet in these broken bodies, we still are prone to sin. You know that every day, that we fall into sin, and yet the posture of the Christian heart is continual repentance, that we see our sin as the Spirit convicts us. And we hear Jesus saying, no, follow me. And so we turn from our sin, we put it to death by the power of God himself, and we follow him. And so we come, as the gospel calls us, into repentance and holiness to be set apart. But this is the thing about this. You don't do that by white-knuckling it. You do that. This is empowered by seeing that God has made us holy. He says, act holy because I have made you holy. And so we need the certainty of knowing God has done this for us. And now I just get to live that out. 
and I'm gonna struggle in all this, but he who began a good work in me will carry it out in completion on that day. That's the promise of Philippians 1.6. That he started this, he will finish it. And so I just need to remember who I am. I'm a son of God. I am holy. So I need to act holy. I need to act like who I am. And that means an ongoing heart of confession, repentance, a posture of humility, reliance on God. And the gospel calls us to this ever-deepening love of God, this ever-deepening enjoyment of God. That God did not just like, you said a magical prayer and you're saved forevermore. Carry on, I'll see you when you die. No, God desires intimacy with us. He desires for you to wake up every single day and know who he is, know him in intimate ways, to know him more fully and know that you can never know him fully. Like that's insane to think, like he wants us like a lover. I love for my wife to learn things about me. And maybe that's super selfish, but I think it's actually God ordained and put into our DNA. That one of the things that I love most about marriage is when she wants to learn more about me. When she decides he's interested in that, I'll be interested in that. And it goes the other way too. Why is that? Because that's how God designed us. That's what God wants. One of the Proverbs says, it's the glory of God to hide mysteries and the glory of kings to find them out. That God wants us like a lover to pursue him, even if it takes time. And yet in all of that, he's present and he wants us to just enjoy him, to be with him. And so this ever-deepening love and enjoyment of God, it's only empowered by seeing the immeasurable love and delight of God on us. I will love him more as I see the more and more that he loves me. And John said that in one of his letters. We love him because he first loved us. So see his love for you. And the gospel also calls us to worship the one worthy of all worship. This is, this is what the whole mission is really about. We, are ex- we exist for the glory of God, to worship him. And we are worshipers by default That's why football games, you don't have to teach people to jump to their feet and clap their hands and scream and all that stuff. And we do this in every arena of our life. That we're always trying to praise something or someone. And God is worthy of all of our praise. He is worthy of worship. But this is empowered by seeing how worthy he is. You have to see how worthy he is for that worship to be cultivated and just become an outflow of your life. And everything you do, you do it to the glory of God. It's one just constant act of worship. To present your body as a living sacrifice. Ah. Lastly, the gospel calls us to obedience in this mission that he gave us. Jesus gave us the great commission before he ascended back to heaven. said, go therefore, or because of all this, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him, Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teach them to observe or to obey everything I've commanded you. This is what we exist for. That's how we worship God. That's how we glorify God. We go to the nations. We go to everyone and we share this gospel, this good news with them. We baptize them. And then we train them up in everything that Jesus has taught us. And so as you look at that, this is obedience. This is obedience and sharing the gospel with everyone. Church, look at me. I need eye contact. You, believer, are commanded by your Lord to share this gospel with everyone. It is not a matter of like, oh, I have the gift of evangelism or I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust those guys or those gals. They're gonna share the gospel. Every single one of us, the first promise of Jesus on this earth 
Follow me and I will what? Make you fishers of men. If you follow me, you will invite others into following me. Share this good news. You must share your faith. This is not something I'm just like, I just want to see the church grow. No, I do. But for God's sake, literally, for God's sake, he said, do this. Go share this good news. You have the privilege of taking this gospel to the world that is broken and lost in darkness. You have found light because light found you. And now you get to take that light. You get to be salt, arresting decay, preserving life, staying the hand of death in this world by sharing the gospel. Like this is a beautiful privilege that we have been given by our Lord. We must be obedient to it. And then it's obedience and baptizing all who respond in faith. <laughs> We're setting the stage for them. Here, this is the first thing you do in obedience to Jesus once you've trusted him as your, as your savior. Now show it to the world in baptism that you identify with his death going under the water and his resurrection coming out of the water. This is newness of life. That you found life in the death of Christ, that you died with him and in his resurrection. Life forevermore. It's like putting on the team jersey this is who I am. And I can have a certainty about that. And then it's obedience and discipling. It's discipling all who respond in faith, teaching them everything that I have commanded you. That's how Jesus said it. And you know what's necessary for that? You must learn everything first. So if you're gonna teach everything that Jesus commanded us, you need to learn what he has commanded us. And so we must be people of the word. We must constantly hear the voice of God and we must submit to it. Not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. This is obedience. We hear, we are shaped by it. And then we go share it. As a church, this is what he's called us to. It's the Great Commission. Every biblical church has the same mission that Jesus gave us in the Great Commission, but then we put different language on it that helps us in our context and gives us kind of some actionable steps. But the language that we've put to it, this is the mission of Beloved Church. It's written in many places. You'll hear us talk about it. But the mission of Beloved Church is showing a broken world a gracious God, and he is our greatest treasure. This is what we do. This is who we are and who we will be moving forward. We are showing a broken world. We will not sugarcoat it, that there is a brokenness to this planet. There's a brokenness to this planet because there's a brokenness to us. The curse fell on the planet because we are cursed, because we rebelled against God. We are sinful people. And so this is a broken world, but we're going to show the broken world a gracious God, that God is gracious. When we deserve just his wrath and his justice, he in grace and mercy provides life and forgiveness to all who believe in him. And so we must show a broken world a gracious God. And then we add that tag to it. And he's our greatest treasure. But it's not just about, can we convert people? It's no, in your life, you, every one of you, beloved, you must see he is the greatest treasure. That he actually is for your happiness. But it's a deep happiness that's more like joy. That it does not matter what your circumstances are here. This is not our home. And what can you do to me? When you come to realize, like Paul, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, then what can you do to me? And so, as a book I've been reading lately, there's a pastor who talks about, we've got to learn to pray in the traffic. Cars flying everywhere, it's like Frogger. But you learn to be in that moment, beside still waters, where my good shepherd has led me. 
flip out all you want to. It's okay. I'm with the Lord. Here, for your sake, or there, so much better. Then you can't touch it. It's checkmate. So we preach this. We live in light of this. We show is the word we use because it's not just whether you preach the gospel or live the gospel as some people say. It's both. That the gospel is that God himself has saved us and he saved us by grace through faith. Not of yourselves. So no one can boast. No work you could do. You could never be good enough. And yet what does he say he did all it for? For these good works that he prepared in advance for us to walk in. Let your light so shine before men that they may give glory to your Father in heaven. And so we proclaim, we must speak this gospel, we must share this gospel explicitly with our mouth and with our text and with our written communication, but we must also live in light of it, that we demonstrate this is justice, this is mercy. This is the effect of my salvation bearing out in my life and yours. So we show the world that God is gracious. He is our greatest treasure. And the vision of our church, this, this is what we're moving forward. And this has been from the beginning, but I, I, I want to press the accelerator this year. We're coming into year three. We are going to relentlessly love city after city by planting gospel-centered churches where people can belong, be known, and be loved. If you want a mega church, this is not for you. And that's okay. And I will happily point you to some great ones. But what we want, what God has called us to, our vision, is we would plant many gospel-centered churches. And so we, we don't have this like written down as a formal thing, but what the elders are kind of continually talking about, if we hit 300, we're gonna send out a bunch of you. Because we want to stay at a size where you can be in community to be known, to know that you belong and you are loved. So we must grow. You must share your faith. Let's invite people to church. Let's invite people to come read the scriptures with us and explore who Jesus is. Let's share the gospel because that is what obedience to our Lord is and the church will grow. But as we grow, our goal is not to just make a big name for beloved church. Our goal is to make a lot of churches that all live for the glory of God and are good for people to be discipled, to be known and shepherded well. This is what we're aiming for. To do that, we must equip. You must grow, I must grow. We must be equipped and we must multiply. We need to be replicating. Um, this, uh, the first time I heard this, I thought it was so cheesy. There's a church my parents are part of and they have this, this event on a Sunday where they called it Pack a Pew. And they used to have old pews and they and say like, look around. All of you look around right now. Do you have empty seats next to you? Who do you know that could be sitting there? Who could you invite? And so we're, we're not like establishing a day, but I want you to take that missional heart and let it sink in. There are empty seats here. I, I once heard a pastor say, empty seats are straight from Satan. <laughs> the effect they have on us. And that's silly, but what is not silly is that that's an opportunity for you to invite someone into following Jesus together with us. To know this gospel, to celebrate this God who is gracious. So we must equip, we must multiply, and then we must send. The day is coming when we're gonna send a bunch of you out, even here locally. I hope that many of you go foreign, that you go to the nations. We already sent Derek and Ray. I hope that we plant churches all over this planet. But I also hope, and I long for the day when we say, too many are here. So we need like 50, 75 of you to go with these three elders 
and you're just gonna go wherever we can find a space, and we're gonna start another church here locally, and just keep multiplying over and over, and that's gonna require sending, and sendings are hard and yet beautiful. So let's run, run towards that day for the glory of God. And that's a lot of things that I'm calling you to, a lot of obedience, and I wanna land with this. Obedience is not gonna come by white-knuckling it. I have no expectation and I do not want to just jump into a bunch of church growth strategies and all that stuff. If you haven't noticed, that's not us. All those things are not how we grow, individually or corporately. Our obedience is the outgrowth of love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. As your pastor, one of your pastors, the only thing that I can truly do for you, if I want to see you grow in obedience, is try to just increase your love for our God. The more you love him, the more obedient you will be. The more certain we are of who Jesus is, the more certain we will be of who we are. Jesus is the beloved, the beloved son of God, and now he calls us his beloved. See him, see this God who loves us that much. He loves you. And then know you are loved. With certainty, this is who he is. And with certainty, this is who I am. And now I can live in light of that. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for the way that you love us. At great cost to yourself. The way that you're calling us more and more into love with you. God, help us to be obedient. Father, I pray for our church. I pray for beloved. So many parents, so many young individuals, so many children, so many grandparents, so many across every stage of life who need you so desperately. And God, I pray desperately now, Spirit, would you just shape us, mold us, help us, open our eyes to see how dependent we are on you. Bless this church, Father. As we move into this next year, God, would you make this a bright light to shine for your glory, to put a spotlight on you, your name, your person, who you are, not ourselves. Would you give us peace and help us to walk into newness of life with you with great joy. As John, your cousin Jesus said, we must decrease so you may increase. So God, let us faithfully deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you, because you're worth every bit of it. We love you, and thank you for the joy that this life is when we know you, but really to be known by you.